Welcome everybody to Legal Tech Week for May 20th, 2022. I am Bob Ambrosi. I am the uh, moderator of this program and uh, I also write the blog Law Sites, which inexplicably you find at lawnext.com because we've changed all our URLs and it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> but it will someday, promise me. I mean, trust me. Uh, and I also have the podcast called Law Next. Well, there you go. Um, and uh, our panelists today, as you see them, kick it off. Steve, you want to start us off? Hi, um, Steve Embry, Louisville, Kentucky. I uh, write the blog Tech Law Crossroads about legal technology, legal innovation, and various and sundry things. Greetings. Greetings. And Nikki. Uh, my name is Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist at My Case Law Practice Management Software. I um, write about the intersection of law and tech at um, a few different publications, including um, ABA Journal, Above the Law, The Daily Record. Uh, I sometimes write blog posts for the My Case blog as well. Thank you. And Joe. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and the podcast Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm in. Um, a little more rural area of New York, uh, tending to my foxes, um, which is not really true, but I've, I've got a fox outbreak here that I'm trying to control. And, and you're referring to animals, we want to make clear. I, I, well, I mean, eh, no, good point. Um, but yeah, no, in this case, I am referring to animals. Uh, and and uh, soon to be Bolivia bound, uh, Zach Warren. Soon to be Bolivia bound in a few days. Yeah. Hey, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm editor in chief of ALM's Legal Tech News. You'll also see me on Law.com and other ALM brands. I'm here pretty hard of the city, Minneapolis, but we've definitely had a turkey in our backyard before. There's wild turkeys in the Twin Cities, which is very interesting. They're everywhere. They're in New York City now. Wild turkeys. Yeah. yeah taking yeah. over they are taking over uh, well, i only have I only have two comments you know i, I think the foxes <laughs> in your woods are saying there's a human outbreak here <laughs> and we have to do something about it because this is really a strange one and when it comes to wild turkey the only wild turkeys that i'm familiar with are the kind that you drink <laughs> yep <laughs> that's when you know that you're in kentucky yep that's right yeah um all right. Well, uh, lots to talk about this week, and uh, well, let's start with <laughs> let's start with what none of us put on our list this week. But uh, since since uh, we were just talking about this ahead of time, which is that my case uh, made another acquisition, uh, and I think I think several of us reported on this this week, uh, and uh, Nikki may have heard something about it. I don't know. She may know something about this, but. Uh, uh, it, what was uh, they, they they acquired Docketwise, which is a software platform for immigration attorneys, uh, and uh, you know it, it's interesting. It's always it's it's been really interesting to me, uh, not not to uh, you know, uh, it, it, it kind of funny talking about it in front of Nikki because she she obviously works there, but uh, uh, I, my case is in some ways has just gone through for. From from an outsider's perspective, a, 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 this this transition this year, the last couple of years, um, in, in which it, it's gone from you know never having made an acquisition to making a number of acquisitions over the last year, 
to kind of always taking this uh, this approach of building everything and not acquiring anything to you know to to starting to acquire these different products uh and i and i think it's really interesting uh and i think it's reflective of how the whole practice management space has become uh, a, a extremely vibrant and, and interesting uh, in terms of what's going on there. Uh, it's a it's a it's a competitive space, but it, you know it's a space in which there have been a whole bunch of kind of smaller players and now we're starting to see the space mature and and consolidate uh, in ways that's really interesting. Uh, and then I, I thought, I mean, the other thing that was interesting in particular about the acquisition of Docketwise and immigration platform is that just last month, Paradigm, uh, another practice management uh, uh, company, uh, acquired uh, a immigration uh, case management platform of its own. So there are parallels there. Uh, and uh, I think that's probably also reflective of 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 the importance of immigration practice right now and of the fact that uh, immigration practitioners have some 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 unique needs particularly in terms of like uh, form generation or whatever that are aren't necessarily uh, addressed by your kind of off the shelf software so uh, yeah that was what really stuck out to me and Reese reported it for us too and I think he had a paragraph at the end specifically about immigration law and the importance of automating just because there are so many requests coming in there's so much happening within that space right now that I think there is a little bit more of a willingness for, for immigration law practices which are usually a little bit smaller to really embrace this stuff and say hey we need to get on top of this right now because otherwise it's just going to be crazy so that's why i think you're seeing a lot of immigration law focused startups but also it makes sense by me why a company like my case is looking to get an immigration specific tool to really service that market yeah it, let me i was just gonna when i was playing i was gonna say when you get an immigration specific tool you're also tending to get a really good uh document assembly form generation whatever you want to call it tool as well um which is kind of comes with the territory. So Nikki, I'm sorry, were you gonna say something? Well, I was, I was gonna say that like personal injury, you know, immigration is one of those practice areas that does have some unique needs. And that's, you know, why, uh, you know, we have that, we had a case per acquisition and um, docket wise, it's because there there's a functionality and there are sort of uh, documents that are required that, if you can automate those and trying to build that into practice management software, you can only put so much into one product, right? And this just gives lawyers options and customization capabilities and, you know, the, and some flexibility. And that's it makes ultimately like the core product more useful from to more to more lawyers, yeah. I would argue. So absolutely. Um uh while we're on the practice management uh, topic, again, I don't think any of us had this on our list to talk about this week, but did, did anybody other than me write about this Clio thing this week? The Clio put out this offer, basically, we're going to buy out, buy you out of your, your, your contract with our competitor uh, so that you'll move over to the Clio platform. I thought that was a really interesting move. I don't think I've seen anybody do that. I think somebody, somebody pointed out that that maybe Case Text did it at some point or something, something similar with with people's Westlaw contracts. But essentially, is if if you've got I think you know sort of less than six months or something left on your contract with a competitor and you want to move over, they will 
give you an equivalent amount of free subscription access to uh, to uh, to Clio. Uh, Sounds like a cell phone provider to me. <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking too. Well, but their coverage is different. You're gonna get that those maps. You know? <laughs> our our signal is louder in uh, Massachusetts. Um, anyway, all right. Um, well. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so that that was an acquisition. Uh, while we're uh, maybe while we're on that topic of, of uh, acquisitions, this has also been a interesting year in terms of uh, legal tech companies going public and having IPOs. And uh, Zach, uh, you guys had a story uh, on kind of taking a look at how those are going. Yeah, the financials. Um, so over the past week, it was Legal Tech Public Financials Week, apparently, where late last week it was Intap and LegalZoom. Then earlier this week, Disco and KL Discovery both had theirs now that all of those are public. So we just had a short post kind of diving in into what financials revealed. Um, pretty much across the board, it was a little bit what you'd expect, where all of them had higher revenues. All of them also posted net losses, which kind of makes sense. They're growing companies. They're reinvesting a lot right now. But just how much they're reinvesting in R&D is something that stood out to me. Um, Disco reported between quarter one 2021 and quarter one 2022, their R&D costs rose something like 93%. Um, Legal Zoom was, I think, around 71%. Both Intap and KL Discovery were in the 40 to 50% range over the same time span as well. So just seeing how much, even over the course of a year, um, and I figure the pandemic probably plays a little part in that. But still, when you think back to 2021, most companies were up and going by that point. So I think it says something about even across disparate as what legal zooms more B2C in tap with their professional services and back office than the two discovery companies. But no matter what, pretty much everybody is heavily investing in R&D right now. And it's a little bit, I think, of the keeping up with the Joneses because there is so much happening technology-wise kind of across the board that no matter what type of company you are, you need to try and invest in technology to keep up. Yeah. Yeah, not too much to add. It's just something that I think it's interesting. We actually get insight into this stuff now because so many legal tech companies are privately held, held by VC companies. That it's just fun to be able to actually look at some of the financials. No, yeah. I mean this, this wave of public stuff is great. Uh, let me. I'm going to check right now on the market, and oh my god, no. <laughs> <laughs> just buy Bitcoin. It's so much safer. Yeah, yeah. I think that what's interesting about it too is they're, it's all legal tech, but they're from sort of different, they serve um, different markets or provide very different products. So it's interesting to see, I think that being able to look at those, I think it was four companies and I mean, I haven't done it, but the, the work that the um, ana analysis that you did, it, it's interesting to kind of see the similarities and disparities across those different, um, I think the similarities even more so, like what are they all? kind of doing as these larger companies that have had, that have IPO'd that are in different sectors of the legal tech space. And to see similarities is probably a sign that um, it's sort of this trickle down effect across the industry. So I think that's a kind of a cool thing that you guys did to kind of analyze all those together. So that's cool. I like yeah. that. 
And I think what I think what you what you said, Zach, about it, it just it's just really interesting to be able to peek behind the curtain here because there's so many claims that we are all presented with from you know marketers and PR people and whatever, uh, or even just talking to CEOs uh, about these companies that you have no way of, of of verifying in any way. I mean, again, just on, on the practice management area. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'll often get called, I, I get a lot of calls from, from analysts or, or other people asking, you know, for my perceptions on things. And, and they'll always say, you know, well, who, how many subscribers does this company have? And uh, I don't know. I, I know I can tell you what they say or what they claim, but I have no idea really. Uh, and, it, you know, talk about my case. It was interesting because my case was previously owned by a public company. And my case was one of the few companies where you could actually go in and figure out exactly how many subscribers they had because it was all reported on, on the public filings. Um, but, uh, you know, so, I, you know, this is a good thing for us to have more transparency here into what's really going on behind the curtains in these businesses. Especially the definitions too, right? Because... Um, different companies are going to define what's a subscriber or what's a user in different ways. But if in those public filings, there's a bit more of a, um, uh, you know, the definitions are agreed upon. There's like specific terms that are agreed upon. So I think it gives a little bit more consistency in that as well. Yeah. You know, it, it, it really, I guess, reflects the maturing a bit of the industry. And, you know, it's, um, it, it, it's nice now that, you know, startup, legal tech startups can, can get access to this kind of information and sort of see what, what they have to, what kind of mountains there are to scale and what they're up against. And so it's a good, I think it's a good thing all the way around. And I'm, that's one of the, one of the good byproducts of going public, I think. Yep. Um, I don't have any cool transitions here so i'll just turn to joe because <laughs> you joe, you had actually had a couple of interesting stories this week we had several interesting stories but a couple you wanted to talk about yeah a couple that vaguely touched on on this subject um yeah so i i don't know what to do i you know what because uh steve actually flagged this one for me uh about, let's talk about this a few weeks ago uh sharon nelson wrote a story for us at above the law about a series of data breaches, one of which was at a mid-sized firm, Stevens and Lee, uh, which is, you know, around 200 lawyers uh, offices, mostly in the mid-Atlantic. And it had this data breach that they had worked out was around 300 people uh, were impacted by this data breach. Fast forward, uh, and uh, this week, uh, Sharon's updated that story with the revelation that it's now up to around 23,000 people who were impacted by this data breach. Uh, and what it really drove home about this story for me was that, you know, I, I this is not, you know, it's going to feel like this is a knock on the firm for not uh, preparing for this. But, you know, it's these things happen. Uh, you can only prepare so much. Uh, hopefully you prepare enough, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I don't think anybody, I don't think there's like, not paying attention here just it's a thing that happens but what i took away from the story is the lesson that there's no real cabining off of data breaches at this point uh you think you can say oh well only these got taken well those included other information that led to these that led to these uh some of the letters that the firm is sending out is you don't know who we are however your financial <laughs> institution worked on a case that our financial institution was litigating which meant that we got your stuff through 
discovery. Like, and that's the whole issue is that these these breaches are bigger than people think. Uh, I don't think that firms are holding off on caring about this issue because they think it's no big deal. But I think the sheer scope of it might, you know, push some folks to understanding that the the upfront investment uh, where they might be tempted to say, well, we can we can get with the bare minimum uh, is probably not enough. And you probably should consider that even your, no matter how small you may think you are and how cabined off you may think you are, uh, you can, you can create a real big mess. Well, it's, yeah, and it's, it's interesting. I was on a panel discussion, uh, this past week with a judge and we were talking about the threats to the judiciary and what that might, uh, portend in the cybersecurity right And, and, you know, they're, they're real because, um, in addition to the fact that, that, there are very private sometimes records uh, that are part of public proceedings, not, not part of judicial proceedings that are not public, uh, but also the very real threat of ransomware and being able to shut a court system down, which could cause all sorts of chaos, both from the civil side and criminal side. And, uh, you know, the, the judge that I was on the panel with was, 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 uneasy about the state of readiness of the of the judiciary and uh, so it, it's a very real threat and and the other point of course is that you know a lot of the very large firms the mlaw 100s you know probably have reasonable security in place but a lot of these very smaller firms I, i'm afraid do not and this very example goes to show the the mischief that they can be uh foisted upon them, not to mention the fact that if they're shut down and can't bill hours, then, oh my God, <laughs> they're in a very real sense, their real livelihood is at stake. So maybe this will be a catalyst to get everybody to think more about it. I hope so. Yeah, that's exactly the point I was going to say too, is, I mean, if you're a bad actor, you're looking for that low hanging fruit, the low hanging fruit probably isn't going to be an AMLAW 100 firm that's invested so much in this and are actively looking for it. I don't think a lot of mid-sized or small law firms see themselves as the low-hanging fruit, though. They think more, oh, I mean, compared to some of those larger firms, we don't have as much data. The data that we have might not be as valuable, so we're not going to be the ones who are targeted. But that is absolutely the wrong way to think, because it's not necessarily about the value value of the data. It's how easy is it for somebody to get in there? Can you get in, get out real quick? And in a lot of those cases, you can. Yeah. And Michelle, Michelle Spencer just shared the, the critical uh, comment on this, which I don't care how sophisticated your, your uh, you know, security and, and data protection systems are. It really just takes one staffer somewhere in your firm clicking on the wrong link uh, especially in some of these ransomware attacks, uh, to uh, to uh, you know open open you up to this, uh, and uh, so it's really so much depends on training, 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 not not necessarily sophisticated systems. On cybersecurity panels I've been on in the past, where you've had a you know cybersecurity expert on the panel, one thing that they always talk about is that exact point that it doesn't matter. Um, how strong the systems are, the weakest link are, is the employees and clicking on this um, on a link somewhere. And once they click on that link, especially in the larger firms in particular, they will sit in there for a long time and just wait 
you know, they'll track the systems, they'll wait for that big transaction that's going to occur. And, you know, they don't, they're not going after those small pickings. Either they're going to like lock up the whole system and like do a ransomware thing or else they're going to wait until they can do that email spoofing and get in the middle of a large transaction and get the movie, uh, the movie, the money sent somewhere else, you know, one of those wire transactions. So that's oftentimes what happens in some, and I've heard more than one person say on more than one occasion that oftentimes they'll, once, once they go in there, they see the bad actors been in the systems for like months, you know, waiting until they have that opportunity. That's the big opportunity. So it really does depend on the goals of that bad actor, but no matter how they get in there, once they're in there, they can do a lot of mischief and damage. Um, and it's not great. It is unfortunately yeah. the times we live in. And I actually, ever since that Equifax breach, I feel like my stuff's just out there. Like, I don't even know what you can do about it. Like, it's all out there. I've given up. I may as well just tattoo my, you know, social security number on my forehead and call it a day. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. it's all out there. Yep. Was it, Joe, do you know, was this a ransomware or was it a just... Uh... I believe this was. I, I that that's my recollection. Uh, I, I was focused on the aftermath because she'd yeah. already written the story about it. But yeah, yeah, I think that is it. And yeah, and I, like one takeaway I had, and I think I wrote about this during Legal Week. Uh, I met I in the bar. Uh, surprisingly, uh, I was sitting there, and there was a representative of a cybersecurity company I didn't really know. And I've started chatting. And uh, one of the things that he said that was very interesting was that, you know, remember Legal Week was mere days, a, a, about a week or so in or a couple weeks into the Ukraine invasion. One of the things he said was, we're finally hearing from some of those firms that for a long time, we thought we would call and they'd kind of blow us off like, oh, we don't really need to invest in just the mere prospect and all the media reports of what Russia can do if it wanted to cyber retaliate had finally sunk in with some of these firms, uh, which is an you know awful reason. But uh, if that's a side effect of what's going on, that could be good for the future for cybersecurity. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, where is Steve? Steve, uh, I'm here. <laughs> you're here. <laughs> you're here. Uh, I'm not fully here, but you're here. That's good. Um, what do you got this week, Steve? Uh, well, there was an interesting article, um, that, uh, Brenda Jeffries for law.com wrote. Um, apparently there are three very large firms, uh, Ropes and Gray, Cooley, and Goodwin Proctor, who have hired uh, Texas lawyers. Uh, and it wasn't clear whether these are associates or partners or, or what have you. They've hired lawyers whose primary practice area is Texas, and yet they haven't opened any office in Texas. None of the three have. And, uh, you know, it, it, it made me start thinking whether this is maybe something we're going to see a lot more of because we can. I mean, you can practice remotely. And if you wanted to test the waters uh, in another state um, without investing in brick and mortar stand, stand up offices, you could easily do it. Um, and that, you know, that has a lot of advantages. Um, you know, I had uh, a whole series of cases once upon a time in North Carolina. And uh, we seriously considered opening an office in North Carolina because of the, the work that we had, all the work that we had there. Um, but uh, we didn't, and thank God we didn't, because you know the, the matters ultimately went away after a period of time. 
but that could be a lot, e- lot easier to do now. And um, uh, so I just wonder if we're going to see a whole lot more of that because, I mean, frankly, uh, of course, you know, my situation is a bit different because I was with a larger firm with more sophisticated clients, but I, I very rarely saw a client grace the door of my office. If, if they wanted to meet, it was like, you're coming to us, pal. We don't have time to go to you. Uh, and uh, so it was never really a very big issue with my clients uh, about where I was or, or what geographically where I was. But as we see now with our with our technological capabilities, you know, you could you could establish a beachhead any place. And if it works great, if it doesn't work, then your investment is you know, relatively small. So I thought it was kind of made a kind of an interesting point about where we may be headed as a profession uh, with particularly with some of the larger firms and maybe even smaller firms. Yeah. And it fits with uh, something we talked about here a few weeks ago. Uh, and I actually did my podcast on this, this just this week uh, on this, this proposal to modify uh, rule 5.5 to allow a lawyer licensed in one state to represent clients in any state. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, Joshua Lennon put a comment in the chat about what no you know, no bona fide office rule in Texas. But uh, you know, if if this five point five change were to come about, uh, you wouldn't need an office anywhere. Uh, I mean, you could practice, you could represent lawyers anywhere. I mean, represent clients anywhere in the country, no matter where you were licensed. Um, I, I, the, the something uh, again. I know we talked about this before, but something that I thought was interesting and came out in in the uh, I, I, I had on my podcast Brian Fonham, who's the uh, uh, president uh, <clears throat> president of uh, April, the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers, which is the group that called for this, um, and he feels like the chances of something like this happening with the ABA are pretty good. I mean, I think when we talked about it a few weeks ago, we, we kind of speculated that, that you know, uh, sort of an uh, iceberg chance in, in hell of surviving uh, or getting very far. But he, he said a, a couple of the people who drafted this report are actually members of the ABA Committee on Professional Responsibility, and one is, in fact, the chair. So there's, he said, even apart from their request to April to consider this issue, there are there 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 are uh, forces uh, happening within the ABA that are pushing for the ABA to consider this. So this could actually happen. I mean, I'm sure it's a ways down the road, but uh, be interesting to see. The office in the cloud. The office in the cloud. <laughs> My yeah. office is in the cloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and we're going back to the simulation I see in the chat here. What I want to know is if this is all a simulation, why am I not in the one where why why am I not in the one where they're like simulating people being immensely rich and and successful or something? Why why am I in they, the other they, simulation? They are simulating that. Oh. You just aren't in that. <laughs> I see. You're pretty successful. I, I'm seeing it. <laughs> you're not giving yourself enough credit. Come on, Bob. You're very successful. It, I don't know if you're rich. Me. I haven't seen your you rich. Know, I am not but... rich. I am. Not. No, no. It, re- it reminds me of trust the Bill, me on that one. It, it reminds me of the Bill Murray mm-hmm. speech in Groundhog Day, where he says, "You know, I was in, on the beach in Jamaica having rum. You know, having the time of my life. How could why couldn't that be my day to repeat all the time?" <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. 
he said a few more things, but I won't go into that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if we run out of things to talk about, we can go back to a recap of the best, the highlights of Groundhog Day. Um, uh, uh, so, Nikki, what do you got this week? Um, well, I wrote an article about um, a topic that I like, the intersection of tech and criminal justice. Um, <clears throat> And um, the article. But none of us can read it because this. I know paywall. it's behind a paywall. Um, sometimes they get picked up by one of the um, sister publications, but that and it's not always behind a paywall. But that didn't happen this time. But I can share the link, and I can also share the case in the chat. Um, <clears throat> it's what I really liked about it was twofold. It, this case was about um, a. Let me get the link. Um, the case was about uh, a defendant who, in a um, trial that was uh, remote, like an online um, trial, and the defendant got muted at some point. And so the case that was brought uh, was an appeal. This is the case that it's based on. It included some assertions by the defendant that um, it violated some of his constitutional rights by muting him. And it was muting him during sentencing. And <clears throat> I really like this because some of my favorite legal tech cases are, or ethics opinions are ones where the judges try to take offline conduct, uh, online conduct and compare it to offline conduct in order to come to a, <clears throat> an appropriate decision. And you know, we all know that online is just, it's the same, but it's different. But that's the, I think the best decisions come from that type of analogy, trying to like figure out how is this equivalent to offline conduct. And in this case, um, the <clears throat> there are a couple conclusions that the court came to, and I think the court reached the right decision. They first of all said that contrary to the defendant's assertions, it wasn't Sixth Amendment rights that were implicated when he was muted during his virtual sentencing, because muting is not akin to physical removal, meaning that he could still be there, he could still see what was happening. Um, and so because he was not physically removed, it was more akin to a due process clause um, violation. So that analysis applied. Um, and they determined, they turned to the assessment of whether muting him violated his Fifth Amendment right to due process and concluded that that wasn't the case because the matters that were discussed when he were muted were sentencing factors, conditions of his release, and that type of thing. And muting didn't adversely affect his counsel's ability to um, urge a favorable sentence. Uh, and I think in part the thinking was that, you know, typically defendants don't have a lot to say at that stage of sentencing. Um, <clears throat> and then they finally said that his claim, that, then there was a second muting that occurred post-sentencing, but before the proceeding had concluded. And they said that didn't impact his right to a meaningful allocution because the court had afforded him two opportunities to speak prior to his actual sentence. Um, so I just thought that it was, I just love those cases where um, something's happening online and things can be done. I mean, it's pretty difficult to mute a defendant in person. I guess you can gag them. You know, they handcuff them sometimes. You can remove them. But muting someone is kind of difficult to do in a courtroom. But it's really easy, as we all have learned online. And, uh, and you know, some attorneys have complained about getting muted while they're making oral arguments, like they can't um, object or interject. and. So I thought it was just interesting that the defendant um, was muted and it resulted in this 
uh, really being the um, linchpin of his appeal in terms of what he was trying, his counsel was trying to argue for him. So I thought it was a really interesting case, which is why I wrote about it. And um, those, I, I really do enjoy those cases where the, for some reason I geek out when the courts are trying to do the online to the offline analogies. So this one pleased me and I liked writing about it. This would be like what would happen if the trial of the Chicago 7 had been in the digital age. Bobby Seale sitting there gagged. I'm wondering if there is down the road going to be some like official rules of conduct or anything that some courts will adopt, because it seems like so much of this is a case by case basis right now where Nikki, as you're going through the facts of the case, it's very much, well, it happened at this specific time. So that's okay. This other specific time would not be okay. It seems like somebody just begging to formalize the entire process of this is when it's okay to mute people. This would be a due process violation but I'm guessing probably not enough remote court cases that somebody's really taken the lead on that right now. That's a really good thought. I hadn't even thought about that, but I think you're right that at some point they probably will just come to some sort of determination of the um, what you can and can't do during these proceedings in terms of like muting and that type of thing. And it would, that would make a lot of sense too. And that would just forego I think it'd make it easier because you don't want the appellate courts to be flooded with appeals based on all these little minutia issues. If they can, you know, nip that in the bud by coming up with these procedural issues, uh, procedural, um, uh, not issues, but procedural processes that will hopefully nip those in the bud. I mean, you can appeal the entire process if you want, but once you do that or a couple parts of it, then it's sort of, this is how it's done. So stop appealing on these little minutia thing. So that's an interesting idea. I wonder if that'll happen. Yeah, and, I, and, I and I don't know, <clears throat> we may be a ways away from where there'll be actual civil rules, but I could, I could easily see, you know, various courts imposing local rules to, to govern these kinds of things. And, you know, that's probably a very good idea. Um, yeah, I'm thinking back to, I mean, there must be something I guess I'm not sure if this is entirely analogous, but I mean, a, a few years ago, there was this uh, experiment in Massachusetts with live streaming uh, cases all this is pre COVID with live live streaming all the cases coming out of Quincy District Court. Uh, uh, it was run through uh, some experiment with Harvard and I forget exactly who else was behind it. But uh, I, I remember at the time, I mean, they 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 clearly had some very specific rules that they had developed a, around basically when the mics can be turned on and off and and in what circumstances you know the live streaming could be the cameras could be turned off the mics could be turned off not exactly the same thing to what you're saying but but they had kind of spelled that out and i, I would think with some other must be some other courts where they're live stream where they're streaming or broadcasting trials that have that certainly have developed rules around at least some aspects of that uh all right. Um, well, since uh, since since Zach is not going to tout the news that came out of uh, his company this week, uh, Law.com, maybe I will do that. Uh, <laughs> um, because well, it's it's it has a news angle to it, right? Um, it was I, I think it's an interesting uh, development. This is uh, some of the. I'm sure you've probably heard of this law.com radar, which kind of launched a couple of years ago now, I guess, as legal radar initially, then got rebranded as law.com radar, uh, which is an, an interesting, interesting in and of itself, because it is a news service 
uh, with stories essentially generated by algorithms. Um, and essentially it's, it's monitoring the uh, federal court dockets and, uh, and in some cases, uh, uh, transactional data as well, m and data, and uh, creating summaries, uh, news digest, news summaries that you can then uh, subscribe to and tailor to your practice area or the things you're, you're interested in following, your, your, your state of practice or your client or even follow your firm, your own firm. Um, but so this week they rolled out in beta this, this new feature called trend detection. Um, and uh, it, it takes it a little bit farther in that it is, uh, you know, uh, now kind of taking this same data, but, but looking for patterns, looking for trends that could be newsworthy effectively. Um, again, especially based on, on what, what a, a lawyer or legal professional's practice area might be or, or what they're interested in following. Uh, but it, it might tell you that, you know, uh, suddenly there was a, a surge in uh, copyright cases in a, in, in a particular district court or uh, a, a, a drop in class actions in a, in a particular uh, uh, product area or, or, or something like that. Uh, and, and it, you know, it's intelligence that law firms uh, in some cases are trying to compile on their own anyway. I mean, in some cases they are trying to detect exactly these kinds of patterns so they can figure out uh, where, where maybe the next area of litigation might be or, or how they might be wanting to uh, uh, shift their own forces internally or whatever else. Uh, and so this is doing it algorithmically, and it's 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 kind of it's kind of cool. They they I've been you know, kind of watching it for the week now, playing around a little bit, uh, and uh, you know it's it's cool in and of itself, and it's it's also cool to the extent it tells us something about where news is, <laughs> where the business of news reporting and is is headed. Uh, you know, increasingly news is being reported algorithmically. Uh, Google News being uh, one of the uh, well, Google News isn't reporting it algorithmically so much as it's it's compiling it and and uh, generating it. But there are services out there that are um, are are reporting essentially like sports news and that kind of thing algorithmically uh, as well. So pretty soon uh, we will all be out of work. The robots are coming to take our jobs. It's a different type of work. It's not out of work. <laughs> no, I, I mean, not to uh, show for my own company too much, but I do think it's something cool that they're doing. And that is very much an editorial-led project that Vanessa Blum and Ben Hancock out of ALM California offices are leading there. And I, I do think to a certain extent that is a little bit of the future of news. Like I know my alma mater at Northwestern has invested heavily, actually, the night lab for AI and journalism. That's the entire point is how exactly can we use the knowledge that journalists have, but automate some of the processes. So not only is the news getting out quicker, but it's kind of like you say for AI and law, journalists can focus more on what they actually want to do, which is more investigative reporting, more uh, digging deep into what actually matters versus just putting out newsers. Um, so hey, something like this, I mean, 
I, I, I told Vanessa explicitly, I love this and probably will use radar more because of it, because tracking individual litigation pieces, not exactly. I something do it's not something I do on a daily basis, but tracking trends is very much up my alley. And I imagine it's very much up the alley of others too. Yeah. And I, I told Vanessa been... explicitly, I want her job. That's, she's got the best job. <laughs> I would think it would be of, of interest to, you know, companies that have uh, lots of litigation, like an insurance company who may want to know as quickly as they can whether the widget maker they insure is going to get hit with seri a series of lawsuits so they can then exclude that part, that product from their coverage. <laughs> right. Right. And, and she's also suggested that, I mean, at some point they hope to extend this to transactions and then beyond that, extend it more into some of ALM's own data. Uh, and, and, you know, ALM collects a whole ton of data about, about law firms and legal practice uh, that I'm sure they're already uh, applying a lot of analytics against, but uh, to be able to kind of start to apply some predictive technology to that as well could be really interesting. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very concerned about the algorithm that's going to copy the way I write. Um, just like it, it's like court says, insert order, Simpsons reference, off color <laughs> joke, law, law, are you serious? Some sort of profanity conclusion. <laughs> I don't want somebody to build this. It's so formulaic. Is that the formula, yeah. right? Is that it? <laughs> I got, I got like one of those forms. I just like it's like Mad Libs, really. <laughs> uh, yeah. Steve, are you gonna say something? No, I was gonna. No. I, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I can say anything to top that. <laughs> uh, all right. We had a couple more things on our list, but uh, we can also. Give people back some some time today if we want to head off for the weekend uh, a little earlier. And I know Zach's got a whole lot of packing to do, so uh, won't be here for the next couple of weeks. We'll miss you. Yeah, can, ha have fun fleeing the law in Bolivia. <laughs> Somewhat. It's actually going to be a bit of a pain because the flight down there. So the reason I'm going is my wife is working with a medical nonprofit in the city of Cochabamba down there. She's been there for about a month. I'm meeting her for the end of her stay, and then we're just going to see the country for a bit. But to get to Cochabamba, Bolivia from Minneapolis may surprise you. There are no direct flights. Um, so uh, next Tuesday, I will be going from here to Houston, to Sao Paulo, to Santa Cruz, Bolivia, to Cochabamba, Bolivia. Fun times and travel ahead. Awesome. Good. Get a good face. Butch man. Cassidy and the Sundance Kid flee to Bolivia. <laughs> Zach Warren and AO and law.com link to believe it'll be it'll be my story for next week <laughs> no yeah no I mean it, that that was definitely the movie I was thinking of and I'm like Zach and Reese are on the run <laughs> why why did I immediately go to Che and you went to uh which Cassidy and Sundance kid um all right. Well, I, I I will not be anywhere exotic next week, so that means I will be here, and I hope uh, others of you will be here as well. And uh, until then, I hope everybody has a good weekend and a good week, and uh, see you then. So long, everybody. Bye, everybody.